Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here. So I want to tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, I was born in 1980 uh, to Steve and Wynette Riesenweber, who are teaching kids' class right now, in fact. Uh, I was a relatively good student growing up. That is after the fourth grade. Prior to that, not so much. It was a mess. Um, I knew Jesus at a young age, and I came to uh, trust in him uh, as, as a fairly young kid. In high school, I started making some bad decisions. I um, kind of walked away from the faith that I had known as a child, and I did many things that I regret to this day. Uh, God, God caught hold of my life later in high school, and... Um, and invited me to new life and to new opportunity. Um, I, went, I went off to college and studied Bible and youth ministry at a university in Texas. That's where I met my wife. I became a pastor. Sarah and I got married. Uh, we had kids. I, I am a father. Um, and so here's the question I propose. Uh, who am I? You see, because... I, I, if, if you asked me in any given moment, a stranger walking down the street says, who are you? I could tell you a name. I'd probably tell you my occupation. Um, but really, I mean, just in the brief time I told you a little bit about my life, we realize I am many things. You see, people are complex. Uh, people have many different traits, have had many different experiences in life, done wonderful things and done terrible things that they regret deeply. Now, we've been in a study on the life of David, and uh, we've been looking at this man who becomes the king of Israel. His name is David. We've been exploring um, just who this man is, looking at the stories of his life, some of the major events, and considering this summer, uh, who, who is this man David, and what do we have to learn from him? You know, one of the things that I think uh, we struggle to do sometimes when we read scripture, especially narrative about a person's life, is we think that that person is the primary character in the story. Uh, but ultimately, as we've explored the life of David and considered who is this man and what can we learn from him, uh, we've learned as much or more about the God that he served, right? Uh, ultimately, God is the main character in all of these stories that we read. So today is our last day in the life of David, and we have gone through many of the major stories in his life, but today uh, we, we want to conclude this series uh, talking about a man whom we're first introduced to as a man after God's own heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, um, Samuel uh, is speaking to the current king in Israel. His name was Saul, and he, he says to him, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. And he's speaking of this man, David. David, a man after God's own heart. And yet, like my story is kind of a mixed bag of good things and bad things and seasons of following God and seasons of doing my own thing, David, a man after God's own heart, if you've been with us, especially the last couple weeks, as we looked at the story of David and Bathsheba and, and uh, God confronting him through Nathan um, uh, because of his sin, you'd say, I don't know, when I look at David's resume, I'm just not real sure about this idea of a man 
after God's own heart. I mean, his resume looks something like this. Uh, we have no idea how many wives he had, but too many, and, and it was a problem in his life. Uh, he was a lousy father, evidenced by Tamar and Absalom. Those are stories that we haven't looked at. They come later in the text. Look at those if you'd like. Uh, he was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He had so much blood on his hands from war that God decided he would not be the one to build the temple. In fact, that's a text we're going to be in today. But you look at that resume and you say, my goodness, a man after God's own heart? Does, does that add up in any way, shape, or form? Uh, I, I want to go just briefly into this statement because it's one used commonly of David. If, if you've been in the church song or if you've heard of the man David, you might have heard this idea, a man after God's own heart. Um, so in the Hebrew uh, that, that this is spoken, the, the Hebrew language is now translated for us into English, um, I, I think there's a little more depth of meaning than we might see in the way it's typically translated for us. Uh, maybe a more accurate translation would be uh, a man that God's heart desires. Or in Israel's uh, writing and language, um, the heart was actually the center of thought or decision or, um, or, or processing. So maybe you could even say a man of God's choosing. Now, so it's not entirely inaccurate, though, to say David was a man after God's own heart. But first and foremost, I think the text uh, and the language used in the Hebrew there tells us that God had a place in his heart for David. That's, that's ultimately uh, what's, what's going on here. God is saying, Saul, you will no longer be king because you have rejected my ways, but I desire this man, David. My heart desires David. So first and foremost, it's about a God who had his, a place in his heart for this man, David. But additionally, I think it's safe to say, it's fair to say, that David had a place in his heart for God. There's some accuracy in this uh, translation and idea um, that, that he was a man after God's own heart. He was seeking God in many ways. In fact, in Psalm 63, uh, Sarah read today during worship, You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. This is, these are words of David saying, God, I thirst for you. I desire you. So we see in the life of David this kind of reciprocal um, God desires, God's heart desires David as the leader of his people, and David desires deeply God. And his story goes on. David is anointed at a, at a young age. If you haven't been with us, I'm going to kind of recap a little bit of what we've gone through in the last seven, eight weeks. David was anointed at a, at a young age to be the king over Israel. Israel, he was a shepherd working his family business out in the, in the fields, in the wilderness, caring for the sheep, at which time God was preparing him for the way he would shepherd and care for his people, Israel. And, and Samuel comes and he says, uh, this is the man that God is seeking. And he anoints David. Now for the next 15 years of David's life, he will be awaiting taking the throne, a long season of transition and challenge in his life. He comes to serve Saul, the current king, and for the 15 years since David has been anointed until he becomes king, uh, uh, he serves this man named Saul, the king at the time. And Saul and David 
began on good terms. Uh, David was a musician, and uh, he was uh, important to Saul. But soon Saul's jealousy and rage took over, and he began throwing spears at David while he played music for him. And uh, uh, in time, he would be pursuing David with an army, uh, trying to kill this man that he'd become so jealous of. Yet David was powerful uh, in many ways, uh, certainly in battle. Sarah told us a number of weeks ago uh, about David fighting Goliath, uh, this giant man who was tormenting Israel on the battlefield that seemingly couldn't be defeated. And with a sling and a stone, David takes down Goliath. He was great in battle, and he won many, many battles. You can go back and read. Uh, what we haven't included much in the series is like the countless chapters that say, and then he defeated the Ammonites, and then he defeated the Philistines, and some of them in quite detail. He was powerful in battle, and he, and he fought for Israel. He had a close friend named Jonathan, uh, and, and we talked about uh, the way David lived in relationship, and not just any kind of relationship, but covenant relationship in which uh, he made promises to this man, Jonathan, saying, I will support you and your household. Jonathan happened to be Saul's uh, son, and so there was risk in the friendship that took place there. Uh, But David and Jonathan were close friends, and David was faithful to his promise. And In fact, I was uh, reading, I didn't bring this out the week we talked about this, but in 2 Samuel 9, uh, the story of David and his friendship with uh, Jonathan continues. Um, and David uh, went asking, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Or, or does he have any descendants, any grandchildren, or anyone? Because both Saul and Jonathan had lost their lives on the battlefield. And uh, David had made this covenant with Jonathan, I will forever care for your household. And um, and in 2 Samuel 9, uh, they, they tell him, yeah, Mish, okay, Mishbosheth. We're going to go with that, but from now on, we're going to call him Mr. M, okay? <laughs> when I read it, I'm, I'm going with Mr. M on this one. Okay, so uh, David said to Mr. M, uh, the son of Jonathan, by the way, who was crippled in both feet, um, uh, David said, Mr. M, at your service, Mr. M replied. Um, Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And and I bring out this text in the story of his friendship with Jonathan and the covenant that they made and his faithfulness to it to highlight that there was very good things in the character of David, right? A a man of his word and a man who was loyal to a family, a a line of people that tried to kill him and betray him in all sorts of ways. And yet David remained faithful to his promises. He was upright in that. A few weeks ago, Andy talked with us about um, David sparing Saul's life. Before Saul would die on the battlefield, he was pursuing David with an army. And when David had opportunity, he said, I will not kill the anointed one. I will not do harm, even though this man Saul is trying to kill him. We talked about a chaotic transition as Saul dies on the battlefield um, and, uh, and David is to be king. And yet, 
Israel for the first time, a foreshadowing of the split that will take on take place later in Israel's history. Um, Judah and Israel uh, are, are split. Some follow David, and some continue to follow the house of Saul. Chaos existed in David's life, and yet he endured the chaos and the challenge and kept his eyes focused on God. In time, he becomes king over all of Israel. And yet, David committed incredible atrocities. We read about um, uh, his assault of, of this woman, Bathsheba. We read about um, his, the rebuke that he received from Nathan. We read about the story of him killing Bathsheba's husband to try to cover up what he'd done. Um, and, and so David, like I think all of us, is a complex man, one that we can see beautiful attributes in, one, uh, a man whom God had a place in his heart for, a man who strove to follow God and yet did not do it perfectly. In fact, did some pretty terrible things in his life. We're going to be in Second Samuel chapter 7 today, and we're going to look at this text. It's, it's not the final story in David's, uh, in David's life, but I think it's really important as we begin to conclude uh, to look at the general character of who David is and what's going on in his life. It's a beautiful and remarkable but brief text. Um, so David, uh, at this point in his life, uh, he's defeated a majority of the armies that were attacking and he's in a season of peace. Uh, they're back in Jerusalem, and he's living in a nice palace, and things are going pretty well. Second Samuel chapter 7. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord gave him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. So he's living in these comfortable circumstances. David had recently brought back the Ark of the Covenant um, to um, to Jerusalem, and uh, God at this time in, in the story and the journey was dwelling uh, at the place of this Ark that would reside in a tent. And David is realizing, look at the posh conditions I'm living in, and yet God is hanging out in a tent somewhere out back, right? He recognizes something quite good and quite valuable. He, rec- he recognizes a disparity. The, the opportunities I'm being afforded by God's hand, uh, I, I'm not reciprocating to God. And I think there's an interesting little side note in here that, that deals with um, just an idea of trying to repay God, um, which I think would be a fallacy. See, see, I think David finds himself like, well, since God has done so much for me, I need to do so much for him. Um, now, do you guys write thank you notes? Do you guys ever write thank you notes? Have you ever received a thank you note for having written a thank you note? We've seen that happen in our family, and I think it's overboard. I think we need to stop this tradition. Now, now I don't like writing thank you notes. Uh, I'm just really bad at it. I think I'm kind of a little more like David. If you did something nice for me, I'd rather build you a house than write you a thank you note. Um, but in this text, David's like, you know, he's recognizing something valuable. God has done something good for me. So not out of repayment for God or something like that. Keep in mind, if we try to repay God for the good that he's done in our lives, it's almost as though we're trying to earn that in and of ourselves. That's, that's not the story. Instead, David says, well, God's done so much for me. I want to honor him with a temple. I want to build for him 
a place. So he acts, we act out of not repayment, but out of gratitude, thankfulness for the things that God has done in our lives. And so initially uh, in that text, Nathan says, yeah, whatever you want to do, God is on your side, go for it. But later that night, God has more to say on the subject. Um, Verse four, but that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with the Israelites, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, wherever I have moved with the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I think this is an interesting response. Yeah, a couple of us are starting to laugh because like uh, David's like wanting to honor God and, and do something really beautiful and respectful. And I think God's saying back to him, is my way of being not good enough for you? Because this is how we've been doing this for a long time. Like, I think the question has to do with motivation. What is your motivation behind the things you're doing? And I get that this is pretty speculative, but I wonder if the questions revolve around, David, are you desiring to honor me or are you desiring to look good in front of the people? and do something that looks really righteous. And this is a theme that comes up in Scripture a number of times, doing acts of service uh, that we would be seen by other people. Jesus accuses the Pharisees of these sorts of things. So I don't know for sure why the questioning, but God says, hey, what's wrong with the way it's been? And why would you be the one to finally build me a temple? And it's a profound question. So God actually tells David, no, you're not the one. And uh, 1 Chronicles 22, it also tells the story of David's life, um, Chronicles does, so you, you can look at it there, but it sheds some light on why. David is talking to his son Solomon, uh, who will build the temple, and he says, it says, David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, but this word, but this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. So uh, in, in time, Solomon will be the one to build the temple for God. And David, uh, I can only imagine his disappointment and maybe even his confusion. Uh, I mean, the majority of the blood that he spilt, as it's, as it's stated here, was in battles on behalf of Israel, on behalf of um, this promised land that they had received, on fighting off the enemies and uh, expelling uh, just evil in this nation. And so he could argue, you know, but no, I've been doing what I was supposed to do as the king. I've been doing what I'm supposed to do in my relationship to you. And yet, uh, I can only imagine the disappointment he's feeling in this moment. And I want to, before we read the next part of the text, I want to ask, how do you deal with disappointment in life? How do you feel like, how do you deal with disappointment when your plans and your goals don't ally with God's plans and God's goals in life? I mean, some of us might have felt some of this disappointment in our life, in our relationship with Jesus, in our Christian walk, a disappointment that says, but God, I thought this was going so well. 
that desire to honor God, that desire to take that next step in life with him in mind. And the answer in David's story is, no, you're not the one. This isn't the time. How do we deal with that kind of disappointment in life? What kind of posture do we take on in struggle or in disappointment in our faith journeys in our relationship with God? The story continues in 2 Samuel 7.18. Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord. I want to pause there and let that sink in. In his disappointment and his realization that he would not be the one to build the temple, something he desired to do, his response initially is to go and to sit in God's presence. I like that start. And he said, who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And, and as if it were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human Okay, and what David's saying there is, who am I that you have given me this much? And who am I that you've even promised more for me in this life? I love the humility. Verse 20, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. Remember, the context of David's prayer here, and it goes on. Please go and, and read more of this uh, in, in your time this week. Um, the context of this prayer is David's disappointment. God telling him, no, you won't be the one to build the temple. You won't be the one to take this next major step in Israel's story, in this place, Jerusalem, in which we dwell. It will not be you. And David's posture is what? He comes in and he says, oh, my goodness. Who am I in your presence, God? I I mean, who am I that you would have given me so much? And who am I that you would be promising me and my family so much more? Who am I? And I think it's a poignant question. Who is David? Right? Who is this guy? He recognizes the blessings that God has given him, and he humbles himself before God. And in chapter 7, verse 22, he says, uh, How great are you, sovereign Lord? There is no one like you, and there is no God but you. Second Samuel seven sixteen says this, uh, God is faithful in his promise. Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, your house and your kingdom shall endure endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established. God has promised so much to this man, David. Uh, And yet when rejection comes, when the answer comes as a no, David does what? He sits in God's presence and he acknowledges God, all that God has done and all that God is going to. He humbles himself before God's goodness. Have you ever found yourself humbled in God's presence? Have you ever fallen to your knees just recognizing who he is and realizing his love and his goodness? Many of us that follow Jesus have come to a point like that in our lives. And and it's a humbling place. And I, I do want to say this is not self-deprecation. You know, this isn't saying, oh, no, not me, you know. Uh, it's about putting God in a his proper place in our lives. 
It's about recognizing our ordinary place, our ordinariness as just another human being, and recognizing God as something so much more, who is orchestrating so much more in our lives and the world around us. It's taking on a posture of gratitude in our lives rather than a posture of pride saying, look at all that I have accomplished. Shouldn't I be allowed to do this also or whatever that looks like in our lives? It's putting God in his proper place. God is faithful to his promise to David. He's promised so much more, and David acknowledges that in this prayer, and God is faithful to that. In uh, Matthew, we'll read the lineage uh, that leads to Jesus' birth, that Jesus would be um, a a king in the line of David, right? Uh, God is faithful to his promise, not just in the life of David's children, but for generations and generations to come until the birth of Jesus. God is faithful to his promise, and it leaves David asking this question, so who am I? You know, it's a complex question. Who am I? Who who are you? A while back, a friend and I, um, Jake, who owns Barracuda Coffee Shop, uh, we started a men's discussion group. And the first question, the first conversation we brought to a group of, I don't remember, 13 guys or something that first night, um, was, uh, who are you? And so we started off the conversation saying, who are you? Why don't you introduce yourself? And Jake and I kind of set them up by telling them our name and our occupation, right? Telling them what we do. Because I think this is often the way we think of who we are as a people. Uh, What I do defines who I am. The kind of work that I do or whatever defines me. And uh, I was super impressed by the third or fourth person they had broken um, the uh, the kind of model that Jake and I had said about just talking about our work and and our name, uh, and they were starting to tell about their spouse and about their children and about things that are a little more significant. And then that night we talked a little bit more about what are the things that define us. Who are we? Um, David Benner uh, writes in a in a book called The Gift of Being Yourself. This is a book that Sarah's been studying in her program that she's been working with recently. Um, he says this. He says, we learn about ourselves by looking at God, looking at us. We learn about ourselves by looking at God, looking at us. How does God view us? In the life of David, he had a place in his heart. God had a place in his heart for David. He saw his sin. He knew what would come, and yet he chose David to fall, to, to be the leader there in Israel. David was a complex person. He committed incredible sins, and he did incredibly good acts. Who was David? Was he one of those things, or was he some sort of compilation of them all? I think ultimately the question of identity is found in relation to God. I think ultimately the question of who am I is found in the context of a God who loves us, of a God who is inviting us to beautiful things, a God who has a place in his heart for each one of us. So we are a complex people. Um, we, uh, we posture ourselves in many different ways in this world. But I want to learn this final lesson from David in his life. Um, how will we posture ourselves before God? How will we posture ourselves before a God who loves? And I propose this. Uh, as in David's life, in our sin, we choose a repentant pro- posture. In our success, we choose gratitude towards God. 
as opposed to pride. And we strive to be attentive to God and to sit in his presence. This is what I hope we can learn from David. Now, as a people now, 2,000 years after Jesus and thousands of years after the story of a man named David, we have a practice as a church, not just the Vine Church, but the church, global church. Um, it's called communion. And communion uh, serves many purposes, and, and um, we, uh, we, we learn in many different aspects of our Christian walk, uh, different, different things from communion. But today I want to talk about our posture as it comes to communion and as we take communion together. Um, I want to talk about a posture as we approach God. Jesus, in his final moments with his closest followers, he's sitting at a table with them, sharing a meal, and he breaks the bread and he said, take this bread, it'll represent my body. And he takes a juice and he, the, the wine, we use grape juice sometimes, um, and he, uh, and, and he takes it and he says, drink of this and remember my blood that will be shed for you. And the question is, as we take this now, thousands of years later, uh, we, we break this bread and we'll take it and we'll dip it in the grape juice and we'll remember his body and his blood that was shed. Uh, I, I pray that today we can approach with a posture of gratitude, a posture that says, God, the good things that you have done are undeserved in my life. I mean, that's a story of Jesus and his sacrifice. Uh, we didn't do anything that could have earned him giving his life for us, and yet today we get to celebrate that he chose that, that in God's heart is a place for each of us. And as we take communion today, we remember a God that loves deeply. We ask questions of, who am I, God? before you, like in your presence, who am I? And we can go confidently knowing this, we are loved. We can also go recognizing our frailty and our sin and the problems that we have in life, bringing those before a God who is generous and gracious to us. So as we prepare to take communion today, I'd invite us to consider what will be my posture before this God, as I remember a sacrifice made by Jesus, how will it help me to reposture my life? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time to explore your word. We thank you for the story of David and all the ups and downs, the good and the bad. I thank you for an opportunity to reflect on what life lived in relationship to you looks like. Father, like David, may we be people uh, who are both repentant uh, and grateful. May we be people that sit at your feet, and today as we take communion, may we be reminded of your love, your goodness, your sacrifice, and the hope that you bring in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I'll close us out with this benediction, with this final word and thought. Um, so may we humble ourselves before the Lord. May we sit in his presence, grateful for all that he's done, repentant in our sin, and trusting in his plan. Friends, thank you for joining us this morning. Have a blessed week.